0: we're going to talk about the paradox of following Christ. I don't know if you know the definition of a paradox or not, but uh, it does not mean two docs, paradox. But it does simply mean this. As you look up in the dictionary, it said, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or presupposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. To be well-founded Let me give you some paradoxes in following Christ or the paradox of following Christ. Here are four of them in the text that we're going to be reading together and studying together this morning. Four that appear to be absurd or self-contradictory statements, but when you analyze them and evaluate them in the context of the passage that we're going to be studying this morning, you will see that they are very much true. Here's the first that we're going to look at this morning. You live by dying. You live by dying. In other words, in order to live, you must die. Life for the believer, for the Christ follower, for the disciple, only happens when we die. You live by dying. Number two, you love by losing. You love by losing. When you lose, whatever is of value to you or important to you, by giving that to someone, you therefore prove your love for that individual, you love by losing. And most of us on Valentine's Day, we're looking for something to receive rather than something to give, right? You love by losing. Number two, you gain by giving. You gain by giving. I think a lot of times we'd have a tendency to think, wait a minute, I gain by receiving, not by giving. But according to the text and the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, we're going to see and discover that Jesus says you actually gain When you give, you gain by giving. Number four, and the final one, you're honored by serving. You're honored by serving. When you serve, you are honored. And who of us don't like to be served? But the fact is that Jesus says that those who serve are the ones who are, in fact, honored, those who are valued, those who are esteemed, those who are elevated by God the Father Himself. When you serve, you are going to be honored by the Father. So in serving, you are then honored. Seemed like paradox to me. How about you? Seems a little bit conflictual with that which the world is trying to teach us and to cause us to seek to evaluate and value our lives accordingly. And so we learn in this text in In John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20 through 29 together, that there is a paradox for those who are disciples in following Jesus. Let's stand in honor of God's word this morning. Let me read it to you as we read together in the words on the screen in our series number seven as we seek to follow the example of Christ. He is going to give us an example this morning, not just tell us what he wants us to do. It's great, I think. One of the beauties about being a Christ follower is that he's not some professor in a classroom telling us how to do it. He actually did it. And in doing it, he says, follow my example. Let me model it for you as I become the master of your life. Notice what he says in John 12, 20 through 26 together. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Father, I pray that as we stand in honor of your word, that you would allow me during this moment to be able to articulate exactly what we've looked at together this week in this text. There are some invaluable truths that generate within us as your disciples the opportunity that you've given us to not only understand how you modeled this for us but how we then need to emulate that which you have modeled for us. So God help me Use the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to bring life transformation through the teaching of your word this morning, and I pray that as we gather together and feast on your word, that you would speak to us not only from your word, but through the power of your spirit to transform us to the model, to the example, and to the life of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity now and for the life that you exhibited and the life that you lived, for you're a savior. a savior. You're our master who modeled for us what you're asking us then to in turn give back to you. So help us in our day-to-day battle to give back to you that which you've done for us. Use this time to empower us with that ability for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I'm going to take a look at the text this morning in context of all that is being said here. In order for us to understand exactly what Jesus is conveying to his disciples, it's important for us to sort of do a little bit of background so that we can have the contextualization of exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples. So we go all the way back to John chapter 11 where we learn that Lazarus has died. It's a sad occasion. He is a very good friend of Christ, if not one of his best friends outside of the 12 of the disciples, the inner circle. And uh, he first learns about Lazarus by a word that is sent to him, indicating that he is probably close to death. He is ill. But he delays in his coming, and as a result of that, Lazarus dies. And they hold a for Lazarus. And Jesus, the Bible says, gets there four days later. Four days later, he arrives. As he arrives on the scene, he learns of the death of Lazarus. We're told that he weeps because he... Is lamenting the death of his friend, but he has already told his disciples that Lazarus has not died unto death and that he is to glorify the Father through this incredible miracle. And so he comes on the scene and he tells the people who are there gathered around the memorial, he says, Roll away the stone. And they roll the stone away at his command. And then Jesus prays to the Father that the Father would be glorified. And based upon this prayer, he then says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus raises from the dead and he hops out of the tomb, still bound by the cloth and on his mouth. Can you imagine being there, witnessing that? Now, keep in mind there are friends, there are family members, there are community members, there are people who maybe know the family, who not know the family. There are people who have been following Christ. There's a large crowd of people who are there of various faiths and various beliefs about Jesus. Some have gathered there to, to mourn the death of their friend. Some are basically there just as spectators because they've heard Jesus is in town and they're looking for a miracle. And they're not disappointed. And Jesus says, loose him, to let him go. And they do that. It's a miraculous thing. And word gets back to the religious elite who are politically motivated in keeping Jesus down. And finally, one Steps up to the plate and he says, it's better that one die than for the nation to die in peril. Seems reasonable to everyone there. And so they began to plot the demise or the death of Christ. They're going to kill him. And they put a bounty out on his head. They want to know about where he might be located so they can arrest him and put him to death. It's a bounty out on Jesus' head. Well, then we move into uh, John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1 through 8, where we learn that Jesus then travels back to Bethany, where Lazarus is is now, having been raised from the dead, is living with his sisters and his friends (coughs) and his relatives. And uh, we, we learn of Mary anointing his feet with this precious perfume. And we know the debate about that. She's anointing him for burial. And then we learn in the passage, I think, verse 9 through verse 11 or 12, where we learn that that uh, the religious elite are not only plotting the demise or the death of Christ to kill him, but they don't like the influence of the testimony of Lazarus. I mean, imagine Lazarus having been raised from the dead after being dead for four days. Everyone knows it. He's already had a stamp of a, a seal of approval from the, from the religious already that he was dead. He's been raised. There's no way they can they can deny the fact that he was dead, but now he's been raised by Christ from the dead, and he goes out and begins to witness this incredible witness, and he has great impact on his community and many come to faith in Christ because of his resurrection from the dead and the power of Christ and so they convey among themselves and they convene and they decide you know what we got to put Lazarus down too not just Jesus I mean he's a he's a powerful witness for the Lord then we learn that Jesus because Bethany is close to Jerusalem is about to fulfill the prophecy where he's going to travel the streets of Jerusalem on a donkey and they're going to hail him as their king and so upon entering close to Jerusalem, he, he gets a donkey. And as he's traveling by, unbeknownst to him or maybe to his disciples, news has traveled very quickly because Bethany is close to Jerusalem that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And it's a powerful witness because there have been many who more than likely live or live close to or in Jerusalem who have witnessed this miraculous thing. They begin to spread the word that Jesus is coming. And you won't believe it. He has raised people from the dead. Lazarus been raised from the dead. And they gather. And they, they get palm branches. And they lay them at, at, uh, on the road as Jesus travels by. And, and they, they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they praise him and herald him as their king. What's going on? Well, you have the masses who are hoping that he becomes their king. Because as we learn on Sunday night in John chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000, we learn that there are some political Uprisers who were there, some political activists who were there, and they, they experienced this incredible miracle of Jesus having fed the 5,000 men plus, you know, 10 or 15,000 others. And if we could have this guy as our commander in chief, think what he could do. He could feed our army and we wouldn't have any need. I mean, out of these small fishes and, uh, uh, and loaves, I mean, look what he's done. He's fed thousands of people. And imagine if he were our leader, we, we could just travel pretty lightly in battle. Now he's raised Lazarus. And they'd imagine that. We'd be in a battle and, and our soldiers would die and Jesus would command them to rise and they'd get back up and they'd engage in battle again. So there's some political unrest here and they're trying to herald Jesus, I believe, to a throne that will become his one day but not now because, you see, his kingdom is of a, another kind at this moment. Now we enter into the narrative of what we're going to be looking at this morning. In John 12, verse 20, we learn. Notice what happens. Notice the movement that Jesus is making now in John 12, 20, toward the cross. This is the final act. This is the last scene. If you were watching a movie or watching a play, this is coming to the crescendo. This is coming to the climax. This is coming to an end. Because Jesus has been working up to this time for this moment. You see, in the narrative of the gospel account of Jesus, there are two things primarily that the Holy Spirit wants to convey through John. The identity of Jesus, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the divine one. And number two, that he's going to die a death on a cross for those who will place their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. That's the objective of the gospel of John. And so Jesus has been instructing his disciples up until now, hey, guys, I'm headed to a cross. There have been several times in which there has been some pressure on Jesus, but he said it's not the moment, it's not the time yet. And regardless of them trying to pressure him to become or to occupy a throne that that is rightfully his but that will come much later, or maybe the persecution that's on Jesus, it's not been allowed by the Father to take effect, to arrest him and to murder him, because he said it's not time. Now he is going to say it's time. This is the moment. You see, they're plotting to arrest and to kill Jesus, and this is now their opportune moment to make this reality a fulfillment. Verse 20 said, now among those who went up to the worship of the feast were some Greeks. Interesting that we learn that this is now close to the Passover meal where they're celebrating the Passover of, remember, the angel of death and the blood on the doorpost and The Passover, they're celebrating this. And and it's interesting that people gather from all over the world in Jerusalem. It is an emotional time of celebration. It is bigger possibly than even our 4th of July. Jerusalem is the Mecca. It is the place. It's the center of this observation and this, this, this festival. And so everyone's coming from all over the world. Many have saved up their entire savings to come maybe just one time to Jerusalem to celebrate once in their lifetime this Passover. And so the city streets are bustling. The crowds are immense. And we see this incredible time. And, and, and so they're all there, all walks of life. And we learn already that the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the scribes and all of these religious, politically influential people are there. They're there to celebrate the fast, the Passover. But you see, these people have already rejected Christ. They have denied his claims. And they are part of the crowd in Jerusalem who are there. When Jesus arrives, they're there. The ones that have rejected him who have refused him. But we also learn the crowd is there. We want to herald him as their king. And they want him to take and to, to have a political uprising and to seize the throne. And so they're there. Well, we also learn that there are some Greeks there. It's interesting that, that the, the Apostle John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about these Gentiles, these people who are not a part of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. They're not a part of the Jewish community that lives in Jerusalem. Why that? Because they're God-fearers. They are Uh, Men and women and boys and girls and families who have rejected their false gods and have embraced Yahweh. They have embraced Jehovah as the one true God. And they have gathered now in Jerusalem for this once-in-a-lifetime celebration to observe the Passover. They've read about it. They've studied it. And now they're there. And imagine these foreigners, these non-Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem who witness or who watch Jesus riding a donkey coming through the narrow streets of Jerusalem being heralded as a king. Remind you of anything at his birth? Some magi from the east who travel a long distance to do what? To pay homage to the king. These foreigners, these non-Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem are there to, to worship Jehovah. They are God-fearers. They, they, they honor the one true God. And now they see this man whose name is Jesus. Maybe they're familiar with him or maybe they're not. And maybe they've never heard of him or not. And all of a sudden, the whole town, this mob has gathered. Why have they gathered? We learn because, you see, news has traveled throughout Jerusalem that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And this, this, this small crowd has become a mob. And they are impressed by that. And they want to know this man, Jesus. They want to interview him. And so what did they do in verse 21? So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They approached Philip, not sure exactly why Philip, Many believe it's because where he was raised, where he lived, more than likely he spoke this foreign language that they spoke. He is the one of the two that we know that had a Greek name, but more than likely all the other disciples also had a Greek name. But they know him somehow, somewhere, and they approach Philip. They they feel a, a kinmanship to him, and they want an inside track for an interview with Christ. Sounds like the press, doesn't it? They're looking for an inside track, and they use Philip. They don't approach Jesus, but they approach Philip. Hey, Philip, we want to see Jesus. They just, they just don't want to see him. They want to know him. They want to interview him. I mean, they more than likely have heard or may have they have witnessed this, this triumphant entry, this king, this incredible man riding on a donkey, and this massive humanity, this sea of people in Jerusalem have, have heralded him as their king, as their messiah. Who is this guy? They want to see him and they want to know him. And so what do they do? Well, uh, Andrew's not quite sure what to do after Philip approaches him and says, Hey, these people are here. You see, this is unprecedented. This is not something that's usual. It's very unusual. They have not been sent to the Gentiles yet. Jesus has had a couple encounters with some, some foreigners, but for the most part, his message has been simply to Israel, to, to, to those who were of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are aware that they are the select, the anointed, the appointed by God to receive the Messiah. And they're now asking, hey, we want to meet Jesus. And so he goes to Andrew, who's the brother, and says, hey, bro, what's going on, man? I don't understand. These guys over here, they're foreigners. They want to see Jesus. They want to interview him. They want to know him. What do I do? Well, they convey and uh, convene a, a, a Baptist meeting there between the two. And they decide, let's go check it out. Let's go see Jesus about this. Let's don't make this decision On our own. You know what I would say? That's pretty good advice. Never go in a direction, never make a decision without first consulting the master. And so they go to him. Hey Jesus, there's some Gentiles up here. We think they're Greeks. Uh, They're God fearers. They've asked to interview you. What do you think? Notice. His response, verse 23, and Jesus answered them. Who's the them? I'm not so sure this is the Greeks. I'm not sure these are the Gentiles. We don't have any conversation between these Gentiles and Christ. They're not mentioned any other time in the text beyond this. But it could be possible that Jesus does have an interview with these guys, and these guys are part of what he's saying. That could be possible. I have studied for quite some time, trying to figure out who the they are, the them that Jesus spoke to, And, and your guess is as good as any other scholars. It's all about what you think and what you believe and how you interpret the text. But he addresses them. And I think what's important, though, for us is that he addresses us as disciples as he addresses them. And notice what he says to them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He identifies himself as the Son of Man. That is one of his favorite titles, especially in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels. And it is a a, a title that he uses often because it is a title that that those of the 12 tribes of Israel, those who are his brothers, uh, understand that he is identifying himself as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the one that they are awaiting and anticipating and looking forward to come. I am the Messiah. I am the one. I am the Son of Man. But notice he said, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, Jesus for quite some time has been saying, it's not time. But now he's saying this is the moment. The time has come. This is the final act, the final chapter of my ministry and of my message. And everything changes for Jesus from this point on. He understands and he realizes that soon he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be convicted. He's going to be murdered on a cross by those who despise him and those who've rejected him. He knows that. But he seems to be okay with it. Why is he okay with it? Because he's well aware that this is the part of the purpose and the plan that God has for his life from the very beginning as to why he was conceived in the womb of a virgin named Mary, why he was birthed, and why he was taken to this point in his life, in his ministry and his message, to fulfill his mission. To die for the redemption of a lost humanity. And he understands and realizes that in spite of their hatred and their anger and and, and the despise and the discontent they have with him, God is fulfilling a purpose, and God is filling a plan. I wish we had time to talk about that a little bit more, but let me just throw a thought out here to you. There are times when we go through hardships and trials and difficulties, and the reason we go through those is because God has an, an ulterior motive. He has a plan. He has a purpose that he's, he, he's bringing into our lives and into the lives of those that our lives touch. There's always a purpose Persecution or for pain or for circumstances or situations, God is always at work and God is about to work through these haters of Jesus to fulfill his purpose and his plan and so a movement is beginning and jesus is well aware now he is discerning this is the moment this is the time i am coming to the very conclusion of my ministry my message and my mission is about to be accomplished and now notice the message that he addresses to the disciples he says to them truly truly i say to you jesus is speaking into the life of his disciples and jesus has every right to speak into the life of disciples why he is their master he is their Lord. He is their Messiah. He is their Savior. He has every right to speak into their lives as He has a right to speak into our lives if He is our Master, our Savior, and our Lord. This weekend we were up at, uh, or down, actually not up, we were down in a, uh, Texas celebrating uh, the a fifth birthday of our twin granddaughters. They're five. They're beautiful little girls. They have blonde hair. Uh, They're models. They've already made some money modeling. Uh, There's some photographs of them, and and they they have have an agent and all that. I mean, they're gorgeous. They're about this tall. If you haven't seen them, uh, you'll see them at some point. My son's a pastor too, so he works on Sundays just like I do. And uh, sometimes they're here, but you can't forget them. And everywhere we go, people look at them because they dress alike. And you go to a restaurant with them this weekend, everybody's looking at them. I mean they they attract a lot of attention, and um, I believe it was Avery who's a little more spunky than Addie. Now you got to know them apart because one of them has curly hair and one of them has straight hair, right, babe? Avery has the curly hair, Addie has the straight hair, and this was the weekend that Doc got it right every time. sometimes I miss because i'm I'm talking fast, but Avery came up to me, and she was, she was doing something. I said, you can't do that. I mean, she's this little, five years old. You're not the boss of me. Mom's not far off. She's in the kitchen. She's hearing the conversation. And I'm thinking, how do I stump a five-year-old? I'm, a, I, I'm of a grandparent. Now, grandparents are supposed to let their kids do everything, right? Right, grandparents? I do. Very rarely do I ever tell them to do anything. Because I want every memory of them, of me to be great. You know what I mean? And uh, the other set of grandparents live close by, and they're the no grandparents, we're the yes grandparents, so we're always having a good thing. They miss us when we're gone. You know why? It's always yes. And I said no. And she said, You're not the boss of me. I said, I am too the boss of you. She said, Well, you're not my dad. You're not the boss of me. And I looked at her and I said, but I am your daddy's daddy. That makes me the boss of you. I stumped a five-year-old. She had no comeback after that. You know, I, I told the 930, if you can stump a five-year-old, you've done a pretty good job. Right? You see, because Jesus Christ is our master and he is the son Of our heavenly father. He has every right to speak into our lives. The sad reality is. I think sometimes we say to him. You're not the boss of me. And Jesus is taking center stage here. And he's saying to his disciples. I am your master. I am your Lord. And because of that. I'm going to speak into your life. And I want you to pay attention. to What I'm about to speak. And we need to pay attention today. To what Jesus is saying. Because these words are not only for them. But they're for us. What does he say? As he speaks into our lives today, as we live out the life of discipleship, notice what he says. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is he saying? I'm not a farmer. We've already identified that with a the, with the farmer right up front. But I do know by, because of research that 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 unless this grain of wheat dies as it's planted into the earth, it will not... Produce or yield a harvest. It must die. And what Jesus is saying by this is that because I must die, the one and only piece of grain that must die on a cross called Calvary, where I will take upon myself your sin against the Father and die in your stead, you will live. And my Father, through my life and through my death, will yield much fruit. And the fruit that he yields is is not just an eternal fruit, but it is a global fruit in that we are going to learn that because the, the Jews rejected the gospel of Christ, it then was sent through the church out into all of the world. And now we are recipients of this incredible, marvelous sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We now become heirs. We now are children. We are sons and daughters of the Father because of his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Right? Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death. But John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever, that whosoever is us. Whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Because of his death, we now live. And what Jesus is saying here, as my disciples, you must emulate, you must follow my example. And that if we want to be saved, and if we want to become followers of Jesus, we too must die to self. We must die to self. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. That's death. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, to me, or for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The Apostle Paul got it. We must get it that if we hope to live, we've got to die. I don't know about you, but that doesn't come natural to me. Is it to you? What do you mean die? Uh, Die to me? Christ died for me. Have you ever heard anybody say, if you were the only one that was a sinner that needed Jesus, he would have died for you? I get it, we're that important. But you see, sometimes we overestimate our importance and we think that it's all about me. When it's not about me, it's all about him. And he calls me to die to myself so that he might live in me and through me. It is about me, but it's not about me. There's a billboard I passed uh, uh, coming up here. And it says, uh, cheese me. Ever seen that? And somebody's advertising. I'm not going to say who it is, but they're advertising their their uh, their uh, uh, cheese and uh, oh noodles, um, whatever it is. Anyway, in other words, if you come into our restaurant, we'll cheese you with what you deserve. Cheese me, 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 me. That's the world. Not for the Christian. Not for the disciples of Christ. Jesus not one time said it's all about me. Whatever be his followers, we need to understand that it's a life of sacrifice. Where we die to ourselves and we take up our cross and we follow him. Number two, notice in verse 26, it's about surrender. Interesting in this text, in verse, I'm sorry, 25, notice that whoever loves his life loses it we saw that if you want to live you got to die now we see if you if you love you're going to lose he said notice the losing part comes to surrender that surrender leads to life whoever loves his life loses it i like that whoever there again he says it again and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life whoever is an open-ended it's a general invitation for whosoever will may come it's inclusive of us That any of us here, if we love this life more than we love him, we will lose this life. It's almost as if he's saying here, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. It's to what? To love God. And then we love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. You see, love is about losing, love is about dying, love is about surrender. I die to me and I surrender to you. And it says, but whoever hates this life, whoever disowns this life, whoever doesn't pursue that which this world has to offer above and beyond that which Christ offers, whoever hates his life in this world. You know, the world wants to constantly sell us. You need, you need, you need, you need. Consume, consume, possess, possess. The world has a way of trying to impact and influence the decisions and the choices and the directions of our lives. And if we're not careful as believers, we'll love this world's stuff more than we love the kingdom of God. But a disciple doesn't do that. I mean, Jesus, when he was taken, as we saw in Matthew 4, and when he studied it last year, he was taken by the enemy to all of these places said, if you'll worship me, this is what you can have. And what did he do? No. And we are constantly being bombarded by the enemy and by the world. If you'll, I mean, I, I just came, I hate the casinos. You've got one you pass every time you come to church. That thing's growing out there. And last night we were coming out, it. it's about 7 o'clock at night or 7. No, it was actually close to 8 o'clock. We didn't leave till 2.30 because we got to see the twins play their first soccer game and Caden playing his upward basketball game. We didn't leave there till about 2.45, and it's a six-plus-hour trip. Depends on how many stops you make. But we were coming up, and Patty said, don't look. But I wanted to look because I saw the cars, and I'm thinking, what kind of idiot would go there? Really? To spend your hard-earned money on what? And I saw all the cars there. There are more people down there on Saturday night than there are in church on Sunday morning. Why? The glam and the glit and the promise of the world. What the promise of the world has? Buy, you know, get, 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 spend in order to receive. People, don't you realize that you go down there to give them your hard-earned money to do what? To keep those lights on, because if they gave everybody money that came in there, they would be broke. I like the church. It costs money to build those facilities and keep those lights on and pay the bills of those people that are, that are behind those counters. They have families just like you. And it was a sad day when we voted them into existence, in my opinion, this close to Wichita. And yet the world keeps offering all that, and people are flocking to it. Why? Because they love the things of the world more than they love Christ. And we must be kingdom pursuers. And our number one agenda and our objectives and our goals with our life is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit working through us to build up his kingdom. For our love for him is greater. You know what? I pass by that, by that thing all the time. Uh, there's one uh, uh, just north of uh, Texas and Oklahoma border. Anybody know about that one? I've watched that thing over six years being built. When we first moved here almost six years ago, it was an ugly building. And now they put a facade on it to make it look like part of the, uh, of the seven wonders of the world. There's London, and there's Paris, and there's Rome. You know what I'm talking about? They've built that since I've been here. And it's all a facade. Because behind all that facade and that camouflage is still an ugly building. With not too many bright people in there spending their money buying into the facade. What this world has to offer isn't of value to us. I don't, I don't pass, every time I pass there, I'm not tempted to stop. Why? It has no value to me. I'm not t- tempted one bit. And so we need to make sure that our love is in the right spot. Or we're going to buy into what this world has to offer. And when we do, we forfeit more than we get in return. Notice the submission that he talks about in verse 26. The submission leads to fellowship, and it's here that we learn that you gain by giving. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In order to follow Christ, what does it take? You've got to be submissive. He has a right to speak into our lives, as we mentioned already, and he has a right then to, to, to dictate and determine where we go, how we live, what we think, what we feel, what we say where we belong, where we don't belong, who we relate to, who we don't relate to. He has every right to dictate and determine those things. Why? Because we're following Him. And He is our Master. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And anyone who serves Him, who follows Him, must follow the example of Christ. He set the example for us. He was obedient even unto death. And sometimes we say, Lord, I can't go there because that's asking too much. You're wanting me to die to what? You're wanting me to give up what? You want me to stop what? Nah, not today. But he says if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. It's interesting to me. That Jesus tests to us that if we want to be where the Father is, we must submit to His leadership and His direction so that as we do, we then join Him where He is so that we can be about what He is doing and experience a relationship with Him that we would not experience otherwise. Where I am, there will my servant be. Where are we going to be? Where He is. Doing what He's doing. Becoming what He is becoming. Jesus said there was a conflict and controversy. When, uh, two of the disciples, you know, they were there, and Mom came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, I want my boys to sit one on your right and one on your left. You know the story? He said, I can't grant you that. That's already being determined by my Heavenly Father. He's sovereign. He's already dictated and determined who's going to sit on my right and left, and you don't really know what you're asking for anyway, but... The disciples got wind of it the other ten and they started arguing among themselves about who was going to be the greatest. Sound kind of like a Baptist business meeting or maybe a life group class. Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus said, What? The greatest is the what? The greatest is the what? The least. Who is the least? The servant. And Jesus said, I have every right to be served. But let me tell you something, boys, I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve. And Jesus is saying to us, as he's saying to them, you want to be great, you need to serve. Why? Because there is honor in service. You want to be the greatest? Become the least. Become the servant of the others. And yet most of us, honestly, come on, we want to be served. We want to be served. And if we live in a business world, which most of us do, what are we told? Serve. Customer's always right. Give them everything they want. Never tell them no, like my granddaughter. Because if you don't provide the service, what happens? They go somewhere else. Sound like church, doesn't it? I said, it sounds like church, doesn't it? Yeah, you don't serve me, I'll go somewhere else. Why? Because there's plenty of other churches that will serve me. The problem is they can't keep up with it. They can. And they're, they're, they're kicking up dust and they're trying as hard as they can to serve all the people that they've gained. Because it's all about service. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't serve each other and we shouldn't provide the best that we have. But We should come with an attitude of being like Christ. We should come to serve as we submit. Lastly, notice the service that leads to reward and recognition. It says in the last part of verse 26 If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Where's our recognition? Where's our recognition? We all like to be recognized. We all like to be applauded. We all want to be at the head of the table and at the banquet and saying, well done. But the greatest honor is the honor we get from the Father. From the Father. The Apostle Paul knew that and he said in 2 Timothy, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. He says, preach the word. He's speaking to the church. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off and to miss. As for you, he says, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Sir, why? Notice what he says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Jesus constantly referenced the end times. Always. For one of these days the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise. And those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And we will be forever with the Lord. No one may see, no one may recognize, no one may applaud you, but he sees and he knows. And he rewards because he remembers what you do for him. Not for yourself or for others, but for him. Watch your motives. And as you run a good race, you fight a good fight, you finish your course. And you lead this life either through death or for the rapture. You're going to stand before him. And I want him to say, as I know you do, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's recognition and reward in faithfulness. Be honest about your faithfulness and make sure you're faithful. Because I'm not so sure I'm as faithful as I think I am. But then again, neither are you and neither are we. As we look through the eyes of Jesus, I wonder what he says about our faithfulness in following him. Let's pray.
1: Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emanuel Baptist Church. Emanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning Emanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.